it's not possible for me to understand the ocean. And, you know, it's just insurmountable. Don't try. But I'm interested in the other people who went out and drowned because I can't learn as much from my mistakes as I can learn from all the mistakes that were ahead of me. You know, I do tell the residents, like, listen, I'm telling you some stories about things I did and things I messed up and cases I saw. You should learn from my mistakes. You should learn from the bodies and patients and deaths, really, behind me, so you don't have to start new for you. Hi, folks. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Now, our guest this episode is Dr. Pick Mukherjee. Dr. Mukherjee is the site director at Long Island Jewish Medical Center at the Zucker School of Medicine Northwell Health Emergency Medicine Residency Program. He's worked as a program director for both the Categorical Emergency Medicine and the combined EMIM Critical Care Residencies, and he's the current teaching fellowship director. In his own words, Pick has a passion for education as a force multiplier and is interested in decision-making, getting better, and being wrong. He describes himself as spending most of his time explaining things to patients in a way that they can understand and to residents in a way that they cannot. Now, you can find Dr. Mukherjee on Twitter with the handle ERCowboy, and you can listen to him on his own podcast, the C1 Do One Teach One podcast on Apple Podcasts. So the title of this episode is Cognitive Preparation, and you're going to hear Pick and I talk about a variety of topics around mental training, including building rapid reflex packages, looking for disconfirming evidence, and training teams to make high-quality decisions. Before we jump in, though, for those of you that have been enjoying what we're up to with the Emergency Mind Project and wondering how you can support our work, you're in luck. We now have a Patreon page up and running. Now, obviously, the best way to support the Emergency Mind Project is to go out into the world and do the work that matters, to tackle complex problem sets and to push your field forward and really learn how to perform under pressure. But if you want to do something more direct to support what we do here with the podcast and with the Emergency Mind Project in general, consider heading to patreon.com slash emergency mind. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash emergency mind and make any sort of a contribution. Again, that's patreon.com slash emergency mind. Okay, all that said, let's dive into episode 69 with Dr. Peek Mukherjee. I hope you enjoy. Pick, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, man. I've been really psyched to dig into this stuff with you. I think we're going to get into some really fascinating territory around decision-making and decision-making under pressure. And I'm, I'm honored that you joined. Thanks for coming. No, it sounds great. I've uh, I listened to your podcast. I know it's mostly expert, you know, rock climbers and performance and high you. So I'm just an ER guy. So I'm... <laughs> <laughs> Love it, man. Can we start? Do you mind giving everybody just a real quick overview of, of who you are and, and, and what you do? Sure. I'm an emergency medicine attending. I work in New York. I have uh, been working for more than 20 years with mostly uh, residencies. So I've been program director and in education. And I actually do speak on error and cognitive decisions and decision making under uncertainty kind of thing. So I'm, I'm very interested to chat with you about this stuff today. Awesome. What got you into emergency medicine to begin with? How did, how did you find yourself in this weird world that we inhabit? I think it was a combination of, I, I did one rotation in fourth year that I really liked and all the other rotations I did, they didn't like me. Uh, so <laughs> uh, yeah, the, I was, I'm not joking. The pediatrician said I was arrogant. The surgeon said I was timid. The psychiatrist said I was crazy. The internal medicine people said I was uh, uh, not thorough enough that, you know, uh, and then the EM people said, you're okay. We like it. You could stay. <laughs> that is like a glowing endorsement for emergency medicine, right? <laughs> wow. There's a that's lot so of, bad. that's great. That's, that's actually really interesting. What, what did you feel when you were in the ER? What was it that, that drew you to it? I felt like some of the impulses that I had that were 
negatively viewed were, were okay in the ED. So if I was like, that guy looks bad, should we run over there? It was not a, oh, you know, we have to go carefully and slowly. And uh, uh, sometimes it was, uh, I, I think we should uh, do a thing without getting permission from the other nine people. Uh, and they didn't think that was crazy for a med student to say, let's do a thing. So I felt like kind of validated. And, and there was some cool stuff. Like there was all this, all the bad ER stories where uh, some guy comes in and collapses. And this is back in the uh, 90s. There were still stabbings and shootings and stuff. Uh, when I was training in Buffalo, I got a bulletproof glass at the county hospital. So it was exciting uh, in a way that it is a lot less exciting for me now. I am, I'm not, <laughs> I don't want to uh, find my bulletproof vest from back when we did uh, Harlem runs in, uh, uh, in EMS or something. Yeah, that's probably for the best. And had you done anything else on the way or were you straight through sort of like university to med school to emergency medicine? Yeah, I was pretty straight through. I had a lot of sort of pokers in the fire uh, coming out of college, and I really was late to the maybe medicine is the thing. And I had actually applied for uh, a number of other other things, uh, internship and uh, abroad stuff, uh, Peace Corps. Hmm. Uh, Peace Corps at that time, they were going to send me to Rwanda, which in retrospect turned out really good that I did not go <laughs> To Rwanda in ninety two ninety three. Challenging time. Yeah. So yeah. So I, I, I it was a little bit of a, a just luck and uh, kismet and uh, things in the right place. And then I, I said, yeah, I, I think I like it. And and really, the some of the hospital volunteer stuff was was actually very very good. Like fourth year and pre medical school were probably the two times I actually liked going to the hospital and shadowing things. And like beginning of med school, not not as much. And where in this arc did you really start getting interested in how to make, not just how to make a decision, but how to make a really high quality decision? So I think I, I didn't have the idea that it was going to be a super high quality decision, but I definitely had the idea that emergency medicine was the important decision, right? It was like the timely decision. It was the decision that would put you on the right path or screw you for the rest of your hospital stay. And it was, you know, we had people, it's, it's almost... I also thought it was actually loaded in our favor. People who are preventive medicine, taking care of patients who feel absolutely well, that's rough. That's crystal ball stuff. How can I improve you when you feel fine and great? And we won't really know if, and like, it, it's very like bend the curve towards the path of you are less likely to develop diabetes over the next 20 years. And really the feedback is poor and you don't know if the interventions are always good. And someone always has a side effect and you question. And I, I, it was tough for me, the, the internal medicine, primary care stuff. And then the, the people who were really uh, chronically uh, dealing with their things, either they were under control or they weren't, but they knew more about their disease than I did. But the people who were fresh had no idea what was going on. This never happened before. I got this new pain. My leg doesn't work. I've never had a headache like this. And that was to me super interesting because it was sort of the the ideal time to bend the curve towards, I know what this is, and, and this is what you do so you don't get real sick from it. So it was almost like a, you're the, you know, EM has a thing, uh, anybody, anytime. And it was like the right time, I, I felt like. It was really laid up for, I'm acutely ill and, and you are here to help me. And I've set it up so that the odds are a little in your favor. So it's really, there's a, there's a sense that the decisions have sort of these outsized ripples attached to them in terms of like the, the impact they make. And also almost the the irreversibility of them, that they really commit you to a path and to a, into a, a location and a direction. Definitely the outsized effect, the, that these decisions are going to make a big deal, but also because they're so 
early, uh, they have a built-in capacity to be wrong. You're operating under uncertainty, right? With time, things become clear. Uh, so, you know, they say the, the last doctor is always the best doctor because that's when you stop going to the doctor. He gets, finally gets it right. Uh, um, so I, I actually only... <laughs> I mean, or you die, right? And then your last or, doctor or, or is not necessarily it's, your it's, best doctor. Uh, I actually didn't understand it's always in the last place you look until like three years mm. ago. I didn't grasp <laughs> that that was a joke. I go, yeah, right? You, you exhausted all the other... No, okay, I get it now. Amazing. Amazing. So, okay. I, we're going to sort of set up a, a tension here where we look at how you make decisions now versus how you made decisions when you first started this arc of being an ER doctor. And I hope that in setting up that tension and using that cutting edge, we can get at some of the underlying details of how one in general makes high quality decisions. So as you look at your day-to-day life now versus how you were when you were, you know, a fresh-faced intern. What do you see that's largely different? How do you approach these decisions differently? And feel free to take that really in any direction that you want to. So I do think about how to get people to be experts faster, right? So I'm in residency training programs, and that's kind of what we're doing. And I've certainly seen the progression uh, when people come in from med student to intern and then higher-level senior stuff. And in the beginning there is a lot of uncertainty because of maybe knowledge gaps. Uh, Those don't last that long, to be honest with you. Most of the basic knowledge uh, gets caught up fairly quickly. But then we have these big disconnects where what the senior people want to do compared to the junior trainees. And a lot of it is based on um, waiting, meaning that the information gatherer will give like 17 points of these are uh, all the things I gathered. They're diabetic, they have high blood pressure, they have this, they have that, have a family history, and they're on and on and on. And the more senior person will just throw away most of that, 80, 90% of it, and focus on like the couple of key things that have the weight. And that's what senior and expert consultants, I, I feel like, do. It seems like they are magically efficient, but really they are contextual and very good at waiting. And when it's really on the fence, they still don't slow down because they have seen this, you know, it could go either way, it's a tie score, and they have a plan for that. They have, well, these people, I like to restratify by this. I, this guy is on the fence, so we're going to do this next test or, or, or function. So they have a lot of moves, and the moves look overly simple to beginners, all right, it's that thing where uh, it, to ex- explain something, no, something really well, can you explain it really, really simply, but not too simply? And until you have a big grasp, you don't understand what too simply is, right? You just go, okay, uh, if you're above 60 years old and your EKG looks at all funky, uh, just admit the patient. And I think that's the sometimes the take home that, that juniors get, because it, it, in the beginning, it's just sort of mimicry. It's like I'm picking up the moves by copying in the beginning, and then over time, uh, I'll develop my own opinion, but also I'll, I'll get a grasp of why this person is is weighting this so heavily. Right? Let's wrap some context in that because there's a ton of gems in what in what Pick just said there. So first off, we're talking about weighting, like adding weight to a thing, W-E-I-G-H-T, not weighting, like pausing to see what's going to happen, right? So when we're talking about weighting different factors, we're saying, what attention are we paying to different potentially conflicting signals that point us in different directions? There's a whole nother arc that we talk about a lot on the Emergency Mind podcast, which is like the decision of when to act versus not act, which is the weighting, W-A-I-T weighting. Absolutely. But th- throw that out, right? What we're talking about today is that's, weighting that's just in, in the... Exactly. Waiting in the sense of adding weight to certain factors. And the underlying theory here is that 
is one of risk stratification in some sense or another, right? That we're trying to decide from a really decision-making, almost Bayesian statistical point of view, like what do we think the probability is that a person has a particular disease? And that question translates across a variety of complex, rapidly adaptive, high-impact problem sets into what is the signal moving us in one direction? Like is reality X or is reality Y? And if reality is X, should we act in path A or path B. And there's these linked sort of probabilistic chains that happen as a result of that. So when we talk about weighting, we're talking about all of the signals that are incoming that we're going to synthesize and compile into a mental model that we're going to use to sort of in- encapsulate our sense of the universe of what we think is happening. Let me use uh, some of the words you used. The junior people are collecting a lot of data points, but they're not figuring out what is the signal from what is mostly noise or at least very weak signal. Uh, whereas senior people are really good at teasing out the bits of strong signal and ignoring the noise. And unfortunately, the signal and the noise change depending on the diagnosis you're looking for, and it gets, it gets complicated. Uh, and if we use our medical words, we would say something like, you said, if this is a Bayesian statistical kind of game. So we'd say, uh, you should pay attention to things with strong positive or negative likelihood ratios, because they will really bend your sort of pretest likelihood, pretest probability. And that is the weighted place that it's going to make the most uh, difference to your decision. Okay. So, so what we have buried in this is different abilities to draw signal and noise out of the universe, and then a different ability to sift through lots of things that are maybe signal and maybe noise and pick out the ones that matter. And then a different ability to apply those to a model, and then a different ability to make conclusions out of that model. Is that, am I getting that chain right? Yeah, I think so. And I think that uh, at the sort of high expert level, it's sort of an algorithm that you have incorporated. It's your practice. It's your standard way of doing things. And you have a, when, when the reality doesn't fit the model, when you do move X and blood pressure does move Y, and it is not supposed to, uh, that is a hard reset. And, and one mark of the expert is how quickly they can, they can recover. And I think that's another theme from your, from your podcast, uh, the way you have successful high performance, it's not as much about the everyday, although you know functioning at a high level every day, it's a lot about recovery. Everyone gets pushed to the place where they don't know what's happening or they're in the uncertain pressure cooker and, and the reality is not going like you expected it to. And how quickly can you kind of reset without uh, hurting your performance because of your own anxiety, you screwed it up or uh, you know I, I got it all wrong. So now my next decision must be worthless, all that kind of stuff. How do you do that? How do you how do you operationalize what you just said? I think that the, again, the, the number of sort of possible moves you have really helps. You don't feel like you are, you know, day one, uh, July 1st intern, and they have been told this is how you approach chest pain. And then unusual things happen and they just don't have the, the list of alternative moves to go down. Like they, are, they got to plan B and there is no plan C. And that's really daunting. So experts may get to, I did not have a plan but I can improvise because now I'm, I got to move to a completely different model, right? So I, I did not plan for this, but I'm going to bring plan E that I usually use for a completely different kind of patient. And this might work here. This is a, um, a Captain Sully. This is a, uh, the model I have in my head for how to fly this large multi-engine plane isn't working right now. I have a different model for a glider. I think that'll work. And that's an on-the-fly Based on experience, this pattern isn't matching. It's diverging from reality. Do I have a pattern in my head that 
fit this better? And so that's a anxiety provoking <laughs> brain search. But that's where the experience uh, of the previous patterns you have really comes in. So one of the things that I'm super fascinated about is the small set of ultra basic, ultra core patterns, to use your words, that work as backups in a lot of situations, right? These are the gliders as opposed to the multi-engine planes or the really basic moves. You know, I was just in a jujitsu class this morning and there's a small subset of basic rules that govern almost all situations, right? Like don't cross midline, don't stick your neck out, stuff like that, right? Like that sort of that are your basic go-tos. What, what do you think those basic patterns are in emergency medicine, right? If you could do a, a matrix style download of a small number of basic patterns into every one of your new residents' heads, what would you put in there? Oh, I, I mean, this is tough. This is uh, every little pithy saying from every old experienced attending, you know, uh, when someone, uh, when someone's blood pressure drops, then it's better believe them the first time. What is it? The, uh, when people show you who they are, believe them the first time. Mm. There's a trauma and the pressure was bad and now it's not. The EKG was bad, but now it's not. Believe them the first time. So there's a lot of little little pithy sayings. I think one of the things, again, like you said, in the beginning, the rule is don't cross the midline. And over time, as you get more comfortable, you'll stray from the rule because now you become an expert. And occasionally you will find a rule that when you stray, you will be punished. And you will realize that is why this is a fundamental, right? Get a UCG. If you have a young woman, make sure they're not pregnant, period. It's not possible. There's no activity. We have some number, like two and a half percent of people who say, swear up and down. There's no law. By the laws of physics, I cannot be pregnant. Two and a half percent of them are pregnant, right? So more than one out of 50. So you have to, you have to do this. And it's a silly rule uh, in emergency medicine that will 100% save you one out of 50 times. And so I think as you go forward, you, you kind of see that, you know, there is a context where I would break this rule, but, but by and large, I will be punished for breaking this rule. So especially for beginners, I don't know what pattern this is. And there's a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen. You stick to your core moves. You know, uh, you ask an emergency medicine resident, how do you want to handle this case? And they absolutely unthinkingly say, ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation. And it's such a rote, silly, get out of jail free card answer. It's also right. It's also correct just about every time. And it's also the discipline of not just saying ABC, but understanding like what actually applying that pattern to a patient in front of you really looks like. Right. And, and I think that's one of the first critical steps that we have as we train folks to, to perform in emergency situations is like, okay, we can, we can give you a pattern. We can arm you with this pattern. We can tell you when faced with a sick patient, consider their airway first. Great. Like that's like, you know, here's your standard operating procedure. But then how do you actually get them to do that? How do you train them to go up to the patient and look at the airway and do a jaw thrust or set suction up to really like clear an airway? Because there's often a breakdown in there. I don't know. What, what do you do about that? So these are, these are more of the physical muscle memory mm -hmm. is how you approach a patient. And we have the advantage of physically being next to our trainees when this happens in the trauma bay. This is not specialty where the chief residents are in the hospital and they call the boss at home and say, I think you got to come in and operate. Emergency attendings, physicians are at the bedside with our trainees. It's a decision that EM people made, you know, a, a long time ago when really residents were the only people in the hospital. And honestly, uh, props to the specialty for, for saying this is better for patients. But for me, I get to see you. And when I think you are not doing it like I think you should be doing it, sometimes I say, I'm going to do it. You're going to watch me do these three things. And this is like a directed observation. So they notice. And then I do it. And then I say, did you see the three things? Can you, can you do that? So 
some of it is just uh, the modeling again, right? The modeling you learned or imagined in your head or prepared for, it's, that's not exactly how we meant uh, that it should be. And let me show you, let me just directly show you. I, I do think that some of the higher level thinking is freed up by these reflexes, right? We literally call them reflexes when we teach the interns. The patient has a seizure, what's the reflex? ABCs, are they breathing? What's their oxygen? What's the next thing? Maybe a medication to break the seizure. What's your, what's your list? But in the moment that you are going through those reflexes, it almost frees up your higher brain, especially as the expert, to kind of be able to, to take, to be a little more situationally aware. And, you know, you know, in this case, that's a little different. That's a little weird over there. This seizure patient also has a, a funny x-ray from the last time he was here. Oh man, he has TB. He's on a med that causes seizures. So we got to give him a different thing entirely. But the fact that you can just reflexively do ABCs and this is the medication for seizure and, and do we need to intubate frees you to do this. It's the sort of checklist takes care of the nitty gritty while the, the captain can uh, look at the big picture. Okay. So, so let's stay on that for a second. So tell me more about these reflex packages that you all do. How, how do you train them? And seizure is a really good one because it's often one of the first like actual true emergencies that an intern might encounter by themselves right? Because maybe they're in the room and the patient starts seizing and there's nobody else around. Usually like a bad trauma, they're not seeing by themselves the first time or a cardiac arrest. There's usually other folks around, but, but seizures may be a good one because it, like, it could theoretically happen to them on, on their own. So how conscious are you all and how do you do it about developing and training to deploy these reflex packages? Pretty, pretty conscious because we talk about the curriculum, especially for the incoming internal orientation and how it changes after they've uh, kind of gotten their feet wet. And so that initial package, you call it the reflex package might be ABCs. How are you assessing the airway? What are you looking in the mouth for? Uh, how are you looking at the trachea? What's your decision tree for should I intubate? What's your first medication? What's the dose? And, and these are drills, but then we do sim, we do simulation a lot. And the typical thing is I'm going to give you a, a very standard looking patient, a very like, here's a patient who is seizing, here are the vitals, we've done this, we talked about this for three weeks in a row now, you've, you've seen this case once a week. Now your move didn't work. And now we build in the off-ramps. So what else do I have in my little plan? What else is plan B, C, D? This is a TB patient, he gets this medicine. This is a younger patient with a history of stroke. They have a, an actual physical anatomical brain problem. This medicine might be better for that. This is a patient. And so it, it goes on and on. And, and the more of those off-ramps you build, the more context now there is. So now, instead of walking in the room and then being flustered that drug A didn't work and move B didn't work and try, trying to improvise for move C, it's one of the pattern recognitions that you have. That before move B, you go, this, this guy's not going to get the usual medicine. He needs the B6 for TB. Like, I, that's just how it's going to go. Give them both, right? And now you're making decisions about timeliness and, you know, you don't skip the one. Let's give them both at once and patient stability, all sorts of stuff. So it, it's layered, right? And uh, when we do simulation, we tell them you will see the same case multiple times over the three years that you were here. And it is, it is important that you not see that as a failure or that you're bored or that it's the same thing. Because in year one, you will do enough to hopefully recognize what's going on and, and keep the patient alive. But year two, you'll do the same thing and order three things to make sure it's not those other weird things. Year four, and that you'll do both of those things. You'll also have already called the intensive care unit, set up a ventilator, ask for the repeat. You, you will be miles ahead, right? And you'll just layer that on as an increasing example of your expertise. Hmm. I love that idea of sort of presenting decision points in a 
manner where they're most likely to be useful, right? Because if you just drop somebody into a case where it's some sort of a, to use the medical terminology, zebra from the beginning, right? Like, like something that is just completely out in left field, they're likely to fail and they're unlikely to know why they failed. And that, that creates a real problem and sort of a learning loop from it, right? But if you're able to build up a, this is what regular looks like, here's what, here's what good is, right? Here's what good is. Good is doing this case this way. Great. Now you're going to do good. And now something's going to be weird and you're going to sort of see what happens to it. Such a great way to learn stuff like that. Medical school for most people is sort of a very list generation. If you hear chest pain, is it a heart attack? There are these features of a heart attack. Uh, you know, what's the pain feel like? Where does it go? Are they nauseous? Do they throw up? Are they out of breath? Do they get sweaty? What are the risk factors? Do they smoke? They just on and off. And we really drill that stuff. And that's fine. But the truth is that when you meet people in real life, they are not the textbook people and they have their own mishmash of features. And that's fine. Overfitting in the beginning is fine. The thing that we sometimes don't do as well is, is the next step, which is arguably the much more useful step. Tell me the key reasons why this chest pain is a heart attack and not a tear in the aorta. Because you might have a completely different sort of context that you will only think about a tear in the aorta for patients who are maybe screaming in pain or their, their vitals are a certain way. But the truth is that the overlap is massive. It's a, you know, the Venn diagram is almost just uh, one solid circle. So having that built in, the here's the key feature, that one strong signal point that should get you off this ramp you know, off of your usual reflex. That's the, I think, a thing that we don't teach as well. And we try to emphasize. So how do you actually do that? If you're having somebody present a case to you and they come to a conclusion, I am fairly certain this is an end STEMI, although a lower probability is a, a PE or something. Do you then ask them like what one to two salient features make you put that order in? Like, do you get them to highlight those edges? We do a lot of uh, show your work, kind of think out loud stuff. Mm -hmm. And that means that it's very easy for my resident to say, I think this patient is sick and should be admitted to a cardiac unit and me to say, I agree with you. But then when we break it down, it turns out that our math is entirely different. Mm -hmm. That my signal is here and he's admitting 60 year olds because they're 60 mm -hmm. and, and, and we don't do that anymore. So it is very much worth the show me your math. Uh, how did you get to this decision? Uh, the other side of that is that when there is a, a disconnect, uh, they can disagree coherently. I can say, I wouldn't have done that, but you make a good case for it. I understand. And this is, might be one of the cases where two people could do it two different ways. And if it's safe for the patient, we're going to do it your way. That's, that's all right. Uh, last thing is probably that kind of the script, right? When the resident, uh, a certain script and it fits the script and they say, so I think it's less likely this other thing. I sometimes flip it and go, tell me all the things that are arguing that it is the other thing. And they start listing it off. They said, well, it's not a blood clot in the lung because then they go, actually, they just got off a plane from Europe a month ago. They did complain about their ankle, but it wasn't that swollen. They took a, they take a hormone. So actually the thing that I didn't think it was, I've just generated three reasons that it, it might be that. And same, same way, like you can, you're likely to find confirming evidence for what your first sort of impulse is. And it's much harder for your brain that does not like, you know, cognitive dissonance to, to actually say, but wait, wait, maybe you're wrong. And so fighting the first impulse a little bit is, is, a, is a good thing. Like, why don't you argue the opposite? Tell me why it is a blood clot instead of telling me you're sure it's a heart attack. I love that. Tell me the features that fit a different pattern. I, I sometimes think about that in terms of like constellations, right? They're, like on one level, you know, it's just a bunch of dots in the sky. And on another level, it's like very clearly a bear and not a scorpion, right? Except that like, you can also be like, well, why is this a scorpion and not a bear? 
Like, give me the other constellation that these stars are actually going to turn into. But the way that you're asking it, tell me the features that fit this different pattern. I really like that. That highlights the edges in there. I, I wonder, one thing that we've started doing a little bit more of is having a senior take a lead and then switching to a junior in the middle of it and being like, the senior seems to think that this is X. What do you see that doesn't fit that pattern? And sort of like going back and forth with this collaborative like inquiry about how else might we get to this conclusion. So people um, are not afraid to disagree, that you're actively seeking the disconfirming evidence, that you realize exactly. some of the things that could go either way, mm -hmm. uh, that they fit both patterns. So you really can't use them as a, that means it's this uh, kind of a thing. I do a thing to, to show how your brain likes to do this, where I say, uh, I have a rule, a math rule in my head. And I'll tell you that uh, two, four, eight, 16, they all fit the rule. Now you guys can ask me as many numbers as you want to test. And when you feel confident, you can guess the rule. And so someone says 32. And I said, yeah, it fits. 64 fits. And they say, oh, it's, it's multiples. It's, uh, you know, you keep uh, multiplying by, by four or by two. And I go, no, that's not the rule. And then they say, well, okay, how about six? Does six fit the rule? I said, yes. They say it's even numbers. And I said, no, it's, that's not the rule. And they just go on and on until they start realizing that they are testing their theory with a confirming evidence when they should be testing a theory with a disconfirming. If you think it's evens, you should ask me, does three fit the rule? And when I tell you, yes, now, right, you could just go on and on saying it's a heart attack, it's a heart attack, it's a heart attack, because you didn't seek out the disconfirming evidence. Oh, yeah. I love that. How do we do that? How do we seek out disconfirming evidence? You have to have a pre-test idea of what it is. If you tell me this patient could have a blood clot in their lung or heart failure, and I'm going to do a blood test, this BNP, because it goes up in heart failure, I'm going to educate you that it also goes up in, in blood clot. Uh, and so using that as a, it's like the medical student, right? That fits the thing I learned in med school, but you know, it also fits the other thing. It's not a useful distinguishing feature. We have this with our, our surgeons all the time. They really like to get a white blood cell count, which does go up with infections. And they seem to use a white count that is not high as disconfirming evidence of appendicitis. And every emergency physician will internally sort of chuckle and go, I will get you the CAT scan that you require, sir. But you know, you and I both know that there's every piece of literature and our experience backs up that that's not a thing. So there's one concept, which is like identifying useful distinguishing features between two mental models. And there's another concept, which is similar, but a little bit different about identifying disconfirming evidence and seeking out disconfirming evidence. Can we press on that difference a little bit? What do you, what do you see as the difference between those things? Useful so, distinguishing features versus disconfirming evidence. I don't know that I actually made them as, as different things, but now that you said it, I'm, I'm going to say that the distinguishing features is a compare and contrast method. And that's really nice when, when two uh, uh, similar things are presented back to back, right? So we'll get cases where all the vitals are the same and the patient complaint is the same, the exam is the same, except this one has a high heart rate and this one has a low heart rate. And it will completely change the, oh, he overdosed on this and that's a different thing. And so that's a nice compare and contrast model. And there's a lot of good literature that that's a good way to learn. Disconfirming evidence is more of a, a, I am done investing brain power on this patient. I'm about to admit them for diagnosis X and start treatment Y. And, and typically the close the loop, make sure everything is okay. It's safe to get admitted to the floor or go home, whatever else hinges on confirming evidence. Mm -hmm which is again, that whole, like my brain is going to find out a way, a reason why the white count is 20 in this patient who definitely doesn't have appendicitis. Uh, that's a terrible example. I just said, white count doesn't matter. Uh, but you know, you'll, you'll kind of, you can kind of be explaining to people sometimes or hearing someone explain, well, uh, I think it's, I think it's a virus. And the reason is because 
well, the white count's high, but that's because you're on steroids. And, you know, the x-ray isn't normal, but that's because you didn't take a deep breath. And, you know, you've been sick for seven, eight days, but vi some viruses can go seven, eight days with fever. That happens all the time. And, and the more you go, you're like, okay, you are correct. This absolutely could be a virus. None of the things you said are disconfirming evidence that it's not a pneumonia. You, you should get a chest x-ray. Like it's a, it's yeah. a, there's a lot of overlap uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. between a lot of our illnesses. There's such a tendency to explain away things that don't fit the pattern that you're looking for, right? Exactly. We're very, very good at, at pretending little things don't matter. We almost have to double or triple weight these W-I-G-H-T weight, these factors that don't like really fit perfectly and be like, wait, wait, what does this mean? What does this mean over here? And what are we going to do about it? But there's so much noise that there absolutely are factors that don't fit. Mm -hmm. I cannot explain why your third toe turned that purple color and then it got better again. I don't, I have, I really don't, but I'm also not that interested in explaining it because you broke your knee over mm -hmm. here. This knee is broken. We have to deal with that. Uh, I'm not going to explain why the tingles on the other leg came and went. It doesn't seem to be anything bad. And I'm going to, I'm going to leave it at that. And so sometimes it's hard, especially for junior trainees to distinguish again, noise from subtle signal, like, oh, in this scenario, this could be important. Right, right. And, and I think that is in large part beholden on us as the more experienced practitioners to help people guide that tuning process to tune to more signal and tune noise differently. The, the risk, of course, is that people develop the same ways of thinking that you and I have, which are inherently imperfect. And how do you help people tune themselves in a way that they're a better instrument than you and I are? But Dan, I'm right. Don't I want people to be right? I wouldn't be teaching them to how to think if I didn't think I was teaching them the right way. Don't I want them to think like me? I want them to copy my pattern and my algorithm. And my, so my answer is, honestly, I'm like 60% not sarcastic about this. Like mm -hmm. I, if I invest a lot of time and energy and I think this is the right way to do it, I'm obviously going to try to convince you that's the right way to do it. But as you gain expertise, you're going to see things I don't see. And you're going to think of things that I don't know. And so the further along you get, the more I will accept, uh, like we talked about, your reasoning actually makes sense. I don't think it goes that way. I think it's this, but, but I can't poke any holes in your reasoning. You showed me your math. It works. The, the treatment plan you have is acceptable. It's not dangerous for the patient. We're not overlooking something terrible. Uh, I just don't think it's this. I think it's that. So the, there is a zone of, you know, time will tell and we'll get your test first. But I, you know, if I was the boss, I would do my test first. Uh, and that's part of our trainees learning independence and getting the feedback they need to figure out the kind of doc they want to be. But I'm hoping that they borrow a lot of what I'm selling them. Uh, I'm hoping I can convince them that this is a, this is a reasonable way to do it. And uh, occasionally they'll convince me. Occasionally I'll say, you know what, uh, I have been doing this a long time. Uh, and apparently I should have changed my practice seven, eight years ago. It seems like I'll do a new thing now. And that's nice. That's fun when the residents have their uh, new hot cutting edge thing uh, that once in a blue moon actually works. Yeah, absolutely. Like an inherent principle, one of those basic patterns you're talking about, about emergency medicine is that we are all imperfect and we practice an imperfect science and we practice it imperfectly. And so there is a humility that comes with it so that there's really not this sense of like, well, my way is literally the only way to ever do this, right? There is one way and it is this way and you do this way or you get out. 
there are times when we need to behave like that because the exigency of the situation or the life and death moment has to move in a certain way. And there's really no time for discussion about it. It's just like move left and move left now. But one of the joys of this is that a lot of times it's not like that. And it really is an opportunity to sort of dig in and be like, well, why do you think that? Where are you coming from? What do you see about the universe that I don't see that makes you go in this direction as opposed to, as opposed to where I'm going? I love those moments. I think that's I think that's really one of the joys of getting to work with residents too. I think I'm a much better physician because I have worked with residents for so long and they keep me honest. Like I know that when they peek over my shoulder and they see what I'm doing and I'm discharging this 101-year-old, I better be able to defend myself because right they, they keep me honest. I do think that one of the issues is that there isn't a right answer because we don't practice in like a high fidelity feedback I know what would have happened environment. I can't tell them what would have happened if we'd done the other way. Sometimes you just have to play the statistics, play the odds, you know, that that reflex most of the time, this is the way it's going to go and the patient's going to do well. And occasionally when it doesn't happen, you got to wonder, uh, was it the wrong choice or was this uh, the correct choice? Uh, you did everything uh, as well as you could have, you should do it the same way the next time, but still there was a bad outcome. So what's the uh, phrase in poker resulting? Mm-hmm, exactly. In medicine, medicine, you can't have too much resulting. Uh, and it's tough. It's very easy to focus on the the big wins and the big losses and go, I got to do that and not that instead of the process, right? So process over outcome. And it's hard to convince people that my process is, you know, I, I want you to borrow from my algorithm, you know, brainstem, and I got to convince you my process is right without being able to show you a good, robust feedback where all my decisions led to good outcomes. I got to somehow convince you that that, you know what, once in a while, my decision led to a bad outcome, but I would make the same decision in the future. That's real tough. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is real. I wish I had a better answer to that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think that's such like a, you know, I think back to like sort of the beginning of, of the COVID pandemic. And I remember a rule that I had used prior to the COVID pandemic was, you know, if the pulse ox is reading 40 something percent and the person's talking to you, the pulse ox is probably wrong because I had never seen that. I didn't know anybody that had seen that. I had never even seen anything that would make that possible. And, you know, my understanding of the way that pulse ox symmetry works from like a physics level was like, that probably doesn't make any sense. Probably it's a problem in the machine and the machines malfunction all the time. Right. So it seems like that would be a thing. And then all of a sudden you have this disconfirming evidence to that rule and you have to adjust in the middle of it. And I think that was such an instructive time period for trainers and trainees to be learning together on the spot like that, to come in one day and be like, actually, we, we both have to throw out this metric I've been using because here is a single piece of disconfirming evidence that this is wrong. So what do we do? How do we update collectively our mental models and rules sort of in real time? So I love that example because, yeah, COVID changed things. And it turned out there were long-term, this is how the ICU took care of viral ARDS rules that absolutely applied to COVID. And it wasn't a brand new uh, novel, uh, Mm -hmm. not obeying the laws of physics problem. But also there was stuff that we hadn't seen and we were surprised by quite a bit. And the really interesting thing that I liked was there were people who weren't as surprised. I had done an international elective and I had gone up in the Himalayas to Nepal and Fariche and base camp and stuff. And they had that. And somebody on probably Twitter said, you know, this happy hypoxic, we've seen this. This is a uh, people are walking around and they're running around with the sat that's the legitimately good waveform, like 58. They don't even make a lactate. They're just that's that's where they are. And so it was 
an example of, hey, your experience is not everyone's experience. And, and look at our like connected world where we can actually have that conversation in real time, right? We were having uh, web discussions with uh, Italians in Milan uh, in their ICU and asking, so what happens here? And they were like, yeah, you might run out of oxygen. I would really uh, ramp up the high flow stuff. That seems to work. I mean, it was actually a really collaborative, useful, like, you know, it didn't, it didn't take you three months and a paper to figure out that, hey, maybe my model in my head is wrong. Uh, you had it in like a week and a half. Right. I, I mean, it was an, it, like from that perspective, it was an amazing sense of hope and humanity to watch people work together across barriers and across boundaries and across time to, to make this to make this thing snap into place as quickly as it did. There was a lot that wasn't hopeful about humanity in that period of time, but that was certainly one of the things that really that really gave me hope about the, you know, the future of our species watching us sort of respond like that and adjust. But there's something in there that's so that's so important and it has to do with this sense of like like I build my expertise based on the small number of things I've seen and the end that I see is so small so small. And what is out in the universe is so incredibly big. And so I have to understand where the limits of my brain is and where the limits of myself is and sort of adjust for that as, as much as possible. And there's this term you, you used in the beginning when we were warming up thinking about cognitive preparation. And to me, that's, I think what you were getting at with that is like understanding the limits and the strengths of the human brain when faced with a really big universe that's much better than much bigger than we are and trying to sort through how to apply that there's this i think it's a i think it's a athenian prayer that i heard once which fits this moment and it just says oh, you know like oh god your ocean is so big and my boat is so small that's it that's the whole thing and i really that that's always really stuck with me as like a, a pretty accurate representation of like how a lot of stuff works like the universe is way bigger and way deeper than i am and it's just like my N is so small in terms of that. So I have to leverage all this other stuff around me. I don't know. It's a huge soapbox. I'm going to step off of that. What do no, you think? I, I like it. I, I have a slightly different reaction to mm. that analogy though. I, I think I'm, I'm more of the, and a little bit of that is the hypoxic mountain climbing uh, folks, right? We, uh, they had information that wasn't in our experience and, and they shared it. And that's how we go forward. It also is a little bit on the reflexes bit. There's a reason they're reflexes. Like there's a reason they're tried and true. They have survived this long. Uh, you, uh, you have a classic in the bookstore and it's been in print for five years and it's a bestseller, but no one knows if it's going to be in print in 10, 20 years. But if you have something that's been in print for 50 years, it's probably going to be in print for another 20, right? It has yeah. withstood the tests of time. Uh, and Ooh. there's a reason for that. The Lindy effect is what that's called yeah, based on the, the Lindy restaurant. That's, that's awesome. And th there's just so much depth here. And I love the way that you guys are thinking about this. There's so many more directions to go. I have one other question, and then I might, then we're going to have to end on the on the nearer side of things. But when we were exchanging some notes back and forth here, you said something that really jogged my memory, which was the horse racing study. Can we can we talk about that for a second? Because I sure. think the horse racing handicap study is a really interesting counterpoint to a lot of what we've been talking about about developing sophisticated algorithms and mental models about about how to pick stuff. So so what's that about? What's horse so racing? So Paul Slovis uh, has a paper and it, in it, he said, I'm going to have a very experienced horse race handicappers, people who make their living on you know, setting the betting, and this is going to be two to one odds, and this is the favored to win guy. And I'm going to give them as much information as they want about these races, and we're going to see how they do. But, but for the first time, I'm going to ask them, you can ask me for any like three things. 
And he had like, you know, 15, 16 uh, handicappers. And they all asked for different things. They asked for the weather, the weight of the horse, the jockey, the length of the track, the heat. The, they had their own algorithms in their head. And, and this is where the weight lived for them. This is where the signal was, was buried. And then they were able to predict something like, I forget the exact number, but it was something like 18% of the races correctly, which was way better than an average one out of you know, nine, 10 horses would have done. It was like twice as good as a random picker would have done. So, so, and all of them did similarly. It wasn't that like one of them had the magic combination of the three things. And then he said, we're going to run it again. Same people. Now you can have anything. And they asked for averages of like 10 or 12 pieces of information. And, and they ran it again. And they all did about the same. So, so it didn't actually help them at all. So you might say, well, then what's the harm? Like more information is better. The thing was that they were much more confident in the wrong answers when they had the more information. In the, in the first round, they calibrated their likelihood of getting the race correct pretty well, right? They were like 60, 70% of like, you should put your money on this one. I'm, I'm confident about this one. This has got the right constellation of my three signal bits. But when they had 10 or 12 piece information, their confidence went up because they knew so much more, but their accuracy did not go up at all. And so this for me is the signal versus noise. I, you, you've been taught to pay attention to this list of things, but really uh, it's, it's hurting your decision-making, not helping. And, and you could put the time pressure element in here too, waiting, W-A-I-T-ing, too long because you're gathering more information, uh, maybe a bad strategy. Ooh, all right. There's so much in there, particularly that gap between accuracy and confidence, I think is really crucial, right? Because we have a tendency, I think all of us to overweight our confidence in the decision, whether or not that actually fits the reality of, of our accuracy. And to me, one of the lessons from the first time I heard about that study was that it's very likely that I will think I am more accurate than I actually am, right? Is that things you take away from that as well? So I think that that is uh, sort of a tried and true for everybody who has an opinion about anything, <laughs> except for the people who are truly beginners and know it. Mm. Right? So if you ask me, uh, can you, here's a list of the water polo teams that are going to the Olympics. Can you rank who's the favorite? I would legitimately say, I have no idea that I'm a random number generator. Go ahead. But, but right. if you give me something that I have a little information on, yeah, I'm probably going to overestimate my accuracy, my confidence. And the more information you give me, oh, I can research it. I can like do some prep. I can go and like read the interviews and like, I'm going to pick a stock. I'm going to read what Forbes says. I'm going to go and see the interview, the CEO. I'm, yeah. Now I'm, I'm going to buy this stock, but I'm not going to do any better than, than the, you know, random number generator. So there's a real skill there, which is recognizing when you are actually a random number generator, right? Recognizing the moments when you feel like you might have information, but actually you're a random number generator. And I think going back to a medical example, one of the times that we tend to think about this a lot is, you know, we have a patient who comes in with abdominal pain and you press on their belly and your resident comes back and says, well, they didn't have any pain when I pressed on them. There were no peritoneal signs. There wasn't any signs of inflammation. So, you know, I think uh, it's not X, Y, or Z. Essentially making the claim, I have actual accuracy in doing this. My test pressing on their belly has accuracy and it has useful negative predictive value. And we're going to update our prior belief based on it and a whole bunch of other stuff that we're sort of glossing over as we say that. And one of the things that we come back to is like, okay, well, do you actually have any ability to make any assumptions based on your test? 
well, what if this person has, you know, is severely, severely immunocompromised and doesn't have, not to hit on white cells again, but doesn't have enough white cells around to produce any sort of an inflammation or a peritonitis sort of response? Or what if they've had massive, massive, massive surgeries that completely rearrange everything in their abdomen and their guts? And so do you even know what you're actually pressing on for this person? And there's all these circumstances where it's actually really important to recognize, hey, in fact, I am I am actually maybe more like a complete beginner here than an expert. And therefore, I need to not really wait the end of what I'm seeing on this. Am I reading that right? I mean, I agree with what you said. I would almost mm-hmm. sell it as knowing rules and reflexes is important. And as sort of an evidence mantra, knowing when to apply the rule is at least as important. So the rule that a truly benign abdominal exam, a non-tender abdomen, probably doesn't require imaging because it's unlikely to have anything surgical going on in there is a good rule. And then you kind of have that asterisk for who are the patients that we believe this rule about? What is our experience? And how many of those patients had, you know, antibodies given to them and their blood pressure is 80 and their mental status isn't very good. And they're barely wincing when the nurse puts an IV in them and they're not reacting when you do their abdominal exam. Maybe you can't trust your abdominal exam in this patient. So a lot of it is, uh, can I apply the rules I have learned to the situation in front of me? This brand new, genetically different, completely context different, COVID-19, we have not seen this before. Does Do the usual rules apply? So it's mm. a good starting point to say, usual rules should apply. And then you go, but look, here's my off-ramp. Here's those right. built-in, you know, you might think twice about this. Big, thank you so much, man. I, I'm going to bring us towards the end here and ask as we close out, if you have anything that you want to challenge folks to do differently after they listen to this episode, something you want them to try on their next shift, or you want them to take a swing at next time they're, they're doing whatever it is that their job is. I'm always trying to push for people to teach more and bedside teaching is what our trainees say they want more. And we all do it and we sometimes don't call it out as much. So definitely a little of the thinking out loud, explain your thought process, ask about the thought process, I do that. The other thing is really the how you get to be an expert because it doesn't stop. So some of that is just going out of your comfort zone. I I think some of our best attendings are the people who are trying to learn new skills uh, who've been doing it for 30 years. And there are people who get the reflexes so down that they stop paying attention to, you know, the rules have changed and this doesn't apply and where that off-ramp is. So yeah, do bedside teaching and go out of your comfort zone. Love it, man. Thank you so much. Such an honor to have you on the podcast. Like, just thank you. It was fun. Thanks for having me, man. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. And you can find it at emergencymind.com slash book. All right. Good luck out there.